0: Hi, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Claudia Long about her novel Chains of Silver. One of the fun parts of hosting this podcast is the chance to find out about historical periods and places outside my usual reading areas. Claudia's series offers one such opportunity. Set among the haciendas, castles, and convents of colonial Mexico... The series explores, among other things, the suffering and triumphs of the hidden Jewish community in an age when the Inquisition remained active in Spain and its colonies. But it is above all an examination of women's lives in a time where the rules governing female behavior were very different from those of our own time. Marcela Leon is only 14 when the forces of the Inquisition sweep up her parents in Mexico's last auto-da-fe. Her mother, Susanna, saves the family at considerable cost to herself. But Marcella's life is forever changed. What happens to her, we will discuss during the interview. But let's start with her mother. The eye of the passage that follows is Susanna, speaking in 1720. I have been thirsty from the moment that the fists and baston pounded on our door. I knew in my belly that the door would open, and the black robes with their red bleeding crosses would overwhelm us. I knew that José Luis would be useless. He was only worth his salt in the market. And on one, poor soul, would be broken in two. But I feared only for Marcella, tiny at fourteen but comely, and as rash with her words as I had been at her age. Would she be safe? There's a daughter, they said. Where is she? We sent her to the convent at Hochimirko to complete her education. I was not the least surprised that my voice did not shake, even though if they found her I would suffer or die from my lie. My voice never shook. She made me proud. They didn't find her. But I was so thirsty. What pleasure I had when the canny smirks on the Inquisitor's faces faded. I confessed immediately to Judaizing, depriving them of the pleasure of torture. I had time in the cart, shackled and bound, and I had time in my cell, the stink of terrified women in my nose, to come up with a plan. But I didn't need time. I knew The moment I felt the rope around my wrists, what I would say, Lilith. And now, please join me in welcoming Claudia Long. Hi, Claudia. It's great to talk with you today. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Uh, You're a lawyer in your non-writing life. What made you decide to become a novelist, and how did you go about doing that?
1: Oh, well, you know, I started writing novels when my first child was born, a little over 30 years ago. And um, I had written some pretty bad poetry in college, but I was an avid reader and I had lots of ideas and creative desires and wanted to put pen to paper. And so um, while my I, I was home with my daughter a little bit, um, I started writing and my first works were absolutely awful. And I started attending writers' conferences sort of as a mini-vacation, and I learned my craft and wrote, and I self-published a mystery. But I figured that, you know, as a lawyer, I'd written plenty of fiction in the form of briefs, and now I could really get creative. And ultimately, I found my niche writing women's erotic fiction, and I really enjoyed that, and it sold very well. Um, But one day I realized that I wanted to write more seriously, and I had loved Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz in college. In fact, I'd written my senior honors thesis on her, and she became the historical focus of my first real novel, Josefina Sin.
0: So, <clears throat> Chains of Silver is the third in the tendrils of the Inquisition now, uh, series and uh, Josefina Sin, as you mentioned, is the first and then the duel for Consuelo. But you've also written The Harlot's Pen. Is, is that the mystery that you were referring to?
1: No, the mystery is uh, long gone, but um, The Harlot's Pen actually comes straight out of my law practice. I work in the field of equal employment opportunity. I'm a mediator for employment discrimination cases, among others. And The Harlot's Pen is the story of women in the labor movement in 1920, which is oddly enough, an era very much like our own. And so since no one would ever buy a book if you described it that way, I wrote it through the eyes of a journalist who embeds yourself in a brothel as a prostitute.
0: Yes, that's definitely a more dramatic take on the whole subject. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Josefina's Sin. That's the only one that I haven't read. How does uh, Sor Juana de la Cruz come into it and other things?
1: Well, when I decided to write about Sor Juana, I knew I didn't want to have her as the main character. I wanted someone who, like me, could discover her and discover her own spirit and emotions by knowing and experiencing Sor Juana. So, Josefina, I created Josefina, and she's a landowner's wife who goes. She's rather innocent. She goes to the Viceroyal Court, where Sohwana is the resident poet. And Josefina learns about poetry, and she discovers her own sensuality and finds herself going well beyond the wife and motherhood that she had expected. But there's a terrible price to pay for that freedom, both in her marriage and in terms of the Inquisition. Um, So she becomes a poet. Where she discovers her own talent and her own drive to write, it tears her life apart, but it also gives it new meaning.
0: So that answers the next question I was going to ask, which is that this novel does deal with themes of the Inquisition and Catholicism, Judaism as well, or how how does that
1: fit in? Uh, Josefina sin deals with Catholicism and the Inquisition and the suppression of women and poetry and free expression. Um, there is a Jew in the beginning, but he only figures symbolically in the rebellion against suppression. The focus on crypto-Jews comes later. Here I'm dealing with the Inquisition's suppression of Sor Juana and of Josefina and of women in general.
0: So did you always intend it to become a
1: series? Um, All three are actually standalones, and all three books are related by um, theme and a a character carrying over. Um, I knew when I was finishing Josefina that I was going to be writing next about crypto-Jews. And as I thought through the plot, I realized that it had to begin with the son of Josefina, who is born both at the end and in the prologue of Josefina's sin. So that was the tie um, between the two books.
0: Okay, yes, we see that in the dual for Consuelo which does start to deal with this issue of crypto Jews. For those who may not be familiar, especially in a Mexican context, uh what is the situation of the Jewish community in Mexico at this time? We're talking about the late 17th early uh sorry, late 17th early 18th
1: centuries. Well, um, what happened was um well I'm a descendant of Sephardic Jews on my mother's side, but they made their way to Poland. Most of the um, Jews who were expelled from Spain um, left and went to Amsterdam and Morocco and the New World, you know, Mexico and Peru. Um, Some went to Poland and I descend from those. But um, the remainder of the Jews were forced to convert at the point of a sword. So they are the conversos, but many of them kept their religion secret, and so they were hidden Jews. They um, emigrated to Mexico to try to find some breathing room, if you will, but they still kept their um, Judaism secret. And um, they From there, uh, eventually withered away, frankly, under suppression. But a few of them make their way north, and we'll pick that up a little bit later. But while they were in um, Mexico in the 17th and 18th century, especially at the end of the 17th century, there was a huge network of hidden Jews hiding one another, encouraging one another, and teaching one another.
0: And as we can see at the very beginning of the duel for Consuelo, uh, Consuelo's mother is one of these hidden Jews.
1: Right. Um, uh, Consuelo's mother is a secret Jew, and she's arrested for Judaizing, and Judaizing is practicing Judaism secretly. And as the Inquisition's power waned, they struggled to remain relevant. Their funding was being cut in the um, beginning of the 18th century because the Spanish king had mounting losses to cover. And so some of the inquisitors went somewhat rogue, again, uh, trying to remain relevant. And Consuelo, of course, has no choice but to save her mother, but she does have the choice of whether or not to continue the traditions of crypto-Judaism or let them die within herself.
0: And at the beginning she I mean she's really been raised Christian even though she has helped her mother with the Sabbath prayers and things like that. It's actually kind of a uh, it's a serious conflict for her.
1: Yeah, um it's It is a serious conflict. It actually is the center of the story. Um, Sure, there's a love story. Uh, There's a love story between her and Juan Carlos, who's the link to Josefina. And, um, of course, we need that love story, and we need to go sideways on her because we need a plot, right? (laughs) And if it were all roses and violins, we wouldn't have much of a story. But, um, interestingly, Juan Carlos has a secret, and that's his parentage. And Consuelo has a secret, and that's her mother's religion. And when they try to hide their true natures from one another, um, you know, distrust and misunderstanding develop. Um, So there's a lot going on, not just with um, uh, Consuelo's spiritual uh, duel, but her love duel as well.
0: And what is it that causes their relationship to go south, right at the very beginning of the novel? I'm not talking
1: about later on. Well, there's, um, there's the distress that develops because, well, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but, um, Juan, Juan Carlos and, Josef- and, uh, Consuelo, uh, sleep together and that creates a huge rift between them because he doesn't promise to marry her he wonders if there is something more going on and uh, consuelo's father hits up juan carlos's father for a huge loan and that makes them him think that maybe she was doing this in payment and that you know of course makes him angry because she loses all her purity in his eyes because, again, the uh, dual nature and dual standards for men and women. So there's a lot going on there in that very beginning.
0: Yes, there is indeed. Um, So as you say, we don't want to go too far into the plot, especially since we're really going to be talking about book three, Um, but I think it might be fun to talk a little bit about the Costa paintings which show up. Um, at a later point uh, when Consuelo is, is visiting the local Marques. Um, and they form the basis of your covers. What are Costa paintings and what draws you to them? What interests you about them?
1: Well, Costa paintings are, um, they are panels of paintings done in um, mostly the 18th century in Mexico. And um, they're an attempt by artists You know, it was a burgeoning enlightenment period, and the artists were trying to categorize, not only for themselves, but for Spain, the wild mix of people that made up society in Mexico and, and the rest of the Spanish New World. So there were pure white Spaniards. There were Spaniards who married Native people and whose children were now a mix. There were children... Those children could marry, for example, the child of black parents and produce a child with all three heritages. And that didn't exist openly in Spain. Um, and as you know, Spain was obsessed with purity of the blood. And But in Mexico, there were all kinds of combinations and it was of great interest to them. People, and, you know, people want to judge these paintings by our current view of racism, but that, in my mind, is foolish. Those pictures were an attempt to Examine and categorize, and understand the glimmers of genetics that were being explored. And so the, the the visions of these families are very beautiful. I chose the pictures because they're gorgeous, and they show the beauty of the combinations that made up the new world. And after all, the people I was writing about were considered to be impure of blood in Spain, so. What could possibly be more significant than these paintings? Yeah, I mean, the one on
0: uh, the Duel for Consuelo cover particularly is absolutely beautiful. Um, uh, but the other one is also very lovely, and we will see more, we we'll or talk more about that in a minute. Um, I don't know if there's a way to answer this, so if you don't want to go into it too much, I'll understand. But although the title of this book um, is The Duel for Consuelo, It's even though Juan Carlos has a rival, like uh, most, you know, as most people do in a a novel that's focused around a love story. I don't think that's the real duel for Consuelo. How do you see her struggle?
1: I think that um, you pretty much nail it in your question. Um, It's um, between her romance and her religion, um, as you. think that her romance and her family, herself and her family, herself and her religion, um, the, the duels are internal, as well as, of course, the very romantic duel between Juan Carlos and Leandro over Consuelo. I mean, that's, that's great, high romance, right? But um, what's really tearing her apart is um, Consuelo's need to uh, reconcile Catholicism and Judaism um, her mother's beliefs and her father's beliefs society's demands on her and her own goals so she's at war on every level
0: so let's turn now to Chains of Silver uh, which came out in print last week and had its formal release yesterday on which I congratulate you um (laughs) This new book is primarily Marcella's story, um, but there's a re- good reason why the novel actually opens with her mother's arrest. So please fill us in on what's happening around the passage that I read in the introduction. Uh, what does her mother do, and how does it affect Marcella's view of the world? Um, and who is Lilith?
1: Okay, well let's let's kind of uh, go back just a step um, as we were talking about uh, the duel for Consuelo. Um, Consuelo has to, her Consuelo's mother is arrested too. So there's a thematic overlay, but when Consuelo rescues her mother, she takes her to a safe house where hidden crypto Jews can be hidden. And that safe house is run by Susana and Susana is Marcella's mother. So, let's break this down a bit. Marcella's mother, Susanna, hides Consuelo's mother in the duel for Consuelo. And Susanna is the one who's carrying on the traditions of the Jews in secret. She's the pillar, and she's the strength of her family. And even though she's a woman, she's the one who studies and learns. And it falls to her to save her family when the Inquisition comes and arrests them but the interesting thing is that she channels lilith and lilith is the female demon figure in jewish tradition she's uh, actually she's the one who gives boys wet dreams okay and she represents sex and the female rebellion but tradition also has it that when god made adam he also made a woman he made lilith and lilith was adam's first wife But she wouldn't submit to Adam as God commanded, so she was banished. And then God made Eve from Adam's rib, and she was a little more compliant. Well, at first, we all know what happened later with the apple and all that. Lilith was banished and takes her revenge in many ways. It's a real hot topic right now, and Lilith is seen both as a demon and as a feminist heroine. And that dichotomy is what what I'm alluding to when I have Susanna channel Lilith before the Inquisition, in front of the Inquisition. And um, so they're seeing her possessed by a demon, but she is actually channeling the feminine rebellion.
0: And that's really appropriate for her, isn't it? I mean, not just the element of female rebellion, but the gap between how Lilith was seen in, say, the early modern period, and I'm sure up until the present day almost, and the way we would see her now as um, a a figure to be admired, Uh, you know, a woman who's um, defending herself, in fact, making her own rules. And Susanna, yeah, although like Susanna, and
1: Susanna does too, yeah, yeah, Susanna does too. But um, Lilith is a complex figure, so we don't see her strictly as a heroine. We also see the demonic side. So when, as the book progresses, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but um, she struggles with her own view of her mother, who has both the um, strength and the, um, dem- not dem- she's not demonic, but she does have, cer- she does certain things that we don't find to be quite motherly, if you will.
0: Yeah, she's a difficult character in the sense yeah. of she's not accommodating. She's not really sympathetic. She loves fiercely and she acts fiercely and she's you know, she'd do everything to defend her family, but she's, she's not the kind of person who's easy to be around.
1: Susanna. Right, and she's
0: broken by the
1: process, too. Mm-hmm.
0: So. so talk to us about Marcella as a character. Um, what appealed to you about her, and how does she differ from her mother, resemble her mother? Um, how does she become your main character for this book?
1: Well, you know, when Consuelo comes to the door of the safe house looking for Susana, she knocks on the door, and a little girl opens the door and says, And it means, what do you want? But it's kind of a rude and childish thing. It's the child, but it's rude. It's, what do you want? Not, um, who are you, or can I help you? And that little girl is Marcella. And she grows up, and when she gets her own book, she's still rude and childish in the beginning. And she's outspoken, and she's thoughtless. But the book is her is her story until she's fifty. So life tempers her, and she learns. As the book progresses, she hates and she grieves and she forgives her mother, and has a journey. That's it. The journey of of Marcella and her mother is a journey unto itself.
0: So, um so let's. Again, we don't want to go too far into the plot, but we're just setting up where things are at the beginning at this moment. Um, after her parents' arrest, uh, Marcela goes to live with Consuelo, uh, who is now wife and mother of a large family, and I guess in a sense is repaying the debt because um, Susana helped Consuelo's mother. Uh, but it's difficult for Marcela to fit in at the
1: hacienda. Why is that? Well Marcella is an old and only child, and she grows up around adults and she's taught to read three languages by the time she's fourteen and at Consuelo's there are eight children all under ten years old and there's a very sexy, powerful man who seems to find her quite attractive and that's a recipe for disaster for any 14 year old to say nothing of one with no worldly experience who's been the apple of the family eye for her whole life so there there are a lot of problems <laughs> that come from from going from being the center of attention to a budding sexual, sexual being in the home of a very powerful man.
0: So when things go wrong, as you've indicated that they do, um, Marcella can't go home. Uh, the Inquisition has freed her parents, but her father's fled north um, to escape the shame and her mother and grandfather are reduced to poverty. They're basically living on what Susana can beg. So Marcela is exiled to Zacatecas, um, which is a mining town in northern Mexico, where she's supposed to keep house for Father Ernesto, who is another of Josefina's sons. And that's a huge adjustment for a girl who is not yet 15 and has just lost both parents, basically. So tell us how it affects her and how she gets along with Father Ernesto, but also why Zacatecas? Does it have a special meaning
1: for you? Actually, um, let me back up a little bit here. And um, one of the influences I have in creating this story is um, my own mother was orphaned at 15 in World War II and was forced to make her own way. So in a way, Marce- uh, Marcela is symbolic of that in my mind. That was one of the influences on me. Um, but she was sent off to Zacatecas, and um, Father Ernesto is Neto, from the middle son of Josefina and Manuel. If you, for those um, listeners who have read Josefina's Sin, Neto grows up to be Father Ernesto. And he's a priest, and he's far from home. And why? I mean, he's from a very wealthy family. Why is he so far away? Well, there are a lot of reasons which develop with the plot. But he's not a bad man. In fact, he's a, in many ways, he's a very good man. But like the other characters, he has a secret he has to keep. And Marcelo's uncle Tomás is in Zacatecas also, and he can't go home either. So, even though he's personally become phenomenally wealthy. And Zacatecas itself was where crypto-Jews went as they made their way north. So, it all fit in for me. Plus, it's a beautiful city and it's great fun to write about. Um, it's not a special place for me in, that, in any other way, but it is a remarkable city known for its salubrious air. <laughs>
0: so. so, what was it like in 1720?
1: Well, um, in 1720, let's 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 kind of think about what Zacatecas was well known for. Zacatecas was a mining city, and um, silver was a huge export for Mexico during that era. So, silver production in the Sea and Zacatecas mines was huge during that era, but it was expensive to produce, and labor gangs went from mine to mine trying to get the best prices for their work. And so Zacatecas had far more males than females because it was a mining town and it attracted men to the possible wealth of the mines or for work. But it also was kind of the frontier. So people with a secret, people with a past, people who couldn't go home. We're moving north into that area, and her Uncle Tomas is a middleman, and he makes a fortune with his money and his mind, and Father Ernesto has a lot of family money, but so he can afford to live as a humble parish priest, so that's what we have going on there. Uh, there's some other characters we'll get to, uh, I know, and we can talk about them in a minute.
0: Right, and one of those, perhaps one of the most important for the story as a whole, and forgive me if I blow the produ- the pronunciation here, is uh, Altamiro. If you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> Altamiro de Jiménez
1: Arapuato. Is that right? It's not, not bad, Altamiro de Jiménez Arapuato. Exactly, okay, but we close. Call so we'll just call him by Altamiro. Okay,
0: we'll call him Altamiro. And Marcella meets him right after her arrival while she's still waiting. She hasn't even met Father Ernesto yet. So tell us about right.
1: him. Uh, he's Actually, I love him. and yeah, um, I did too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and I see him as the male protagonist in the story. I loved writing about him. He's a mestizo. He's very, very handsome. He's tall. He's strong. He has no formal education, but he is brilliantly intelligent. And he really ties all the male characters to grit together in the story. And ultimately, maybe he's the man who never betrays Marcella. Or maybe he does. It's hard to decide that one. But. Um, it's he's he's critical to all of this and he's poor at first but in the end he ends up quite well off and as Zacatecas grows through the the story you know the great cathedral is built women come and society is more civilized Altamiro grows in prestige and in wealth and is more civilized in the end as well
0: yes yes he is um and you just answered uh, how Zacatecas changes over the course. The novel goes, as you mentioned, until Marcella is 50. So it goes all the way up to 19, to 19 interesting, so 1753. Um, right. So one other character I, I think we should at least talk about is um, Santander Santanho. Um, whom Marcella meets through her uncle, and whom she marries. Um, tell us about him. Where he fits into the group? And what he's like as a person?
1: Well, he's um, he's a weak man. He's loving, but he can't face his own reality, and he's basically living a lie. But he, you know, he loves to read. He loves poetry. He loves the study, and he relates to Marcela on those levels. Um, luckily for him, Tomas, her uncle, Tomas takes him under his wing and teaches him enough of how to be the middleman to let him live comfortably. And he um, and uh, Santander marries Marcela, who's Tomas's niece. Um, he's tragic, and he's tragic in his inability to accept who he really is. And so that 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 fuels part of the tragedy of the story, I think.
0: Yes, yes. Um, if, unlike the other characters who have secrets, uh, he seems to be the one who is least willing to confront his okay, his reality. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more that we could say. Um, we're still only about halfway through the novel, but we don't want to go too far. Um, but so, maybe we could talk a little bit about how the religious theme, theme, the crypto-Jews and Christianity, plays out in this novel. Because Marcela, although once she's living with Father Ernesto, she I guess we could say she becomes Christianized, or at least silenced. She is um, much more unambiguously Jewish at the beginning of the story than, say, Consuelo.
1: Yes. Um, it, that's the contrast. Um, Consuelo is brought up as, um, a Christian and her mother Judaizes and doesn't explain the depth of the significance of an entire religion. And she herself knows less and less, but Marcella is brought up in a Central uh, crypto Jewish family where they are actively Judaizing, studying, learning Hebrew, having visiting rabbis, um, hiding people. So she comes from a very different background, but she's punished very early in life for her upbringing. She's forcefully separated from her mother. Um, and while her mother sees exiling Marcella as a way to save her, Marcella feels abandoned. And after what she goes through at uh, Father Agnesto's, she more or less abandons her own Jewish ways. And at that point, it seems that Susana's sacrifice has been in vain. But as Marcella grows and matures, she eventually returns to her Jewish roots and in a balanced way knows that she can't be openly Judaizing, but she does maintain in her later life the the threads of it, the tendrils of of Judaism. And she also learns to understand what her mother did for her and to forgive her for her own flaws and failures. Um, To me, it's something we all hope to do, (laughs) hope to learn as we all mature. And Marcella, in that way, is all of us.
0: So tell us a bit about your research. Um, I know you grew up in Mexico City, but it must have changed a good deal since 1720. Um, So... What I mean, how did you go about recreating that past world on the page?
1: Well, one of my favorite ways to research the past is to read plays from the era I'm concerned about, looking at the paintings done during that time, and reading poems and stories. And in one case, part of my research for um, uh, Chains of Silver, I was able to read um, both um, mining ledgers um, Original, they were originals, and um, documents from a court case about homosexuality and how the parties got out of um, the death penalty. Um, so I was reading court papers, I was reading um, ledgers, but paintings tell you what people wore, what houses they looked like, what their furniture looked like, what their towns looked like, and stories and plays tell you what they wanted to believe and how they wanted how they talked. So I'm able to recreate. Through art, um, not only reading the history, of course, which we all have to do, but I find that art portrays um, it portrays an era in a way that really makes it real for me.
0: Yeah, I agree with you absolutely. The internet is an amazing resource in that respect. I spend in the beginning of a novel, I spend an enormous amount of time searching for paintings or rooms or museums that replicate a particular period objects of all kinds i mean it's it's amazing what you can get these days and it all helps too Mm -hmm. and plays too yeah well not in medieval russia but okay but 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 you you were luckier (laughs)
1: Yes, in, in your era is a little bit different. My era had lots of, of plays, and so I can hear the rhythms of people's speech, even though, of course, they're written often in poetry. Um, how what what are the words that people are using in plays? You know, what are the the servants saying in plays? How are people really talking? You know, and it gives you a flavor for the time. What's important to them? What are their fantasies? What are their ideas of? Um, Romance, how are things supposed to end morally? You know, what's acceptable, what isn't acceptable.
0: Yeah, no, so I agree. Yeah. We, we don't have too many of that in 16th century Russia, but we do have this one wonderful book, which I translated years ago, which is um, what they call a domestic conduct manual. And so it's full of, you uh-huh. know, don't let your servants do this. Don't let them do that. So you know what they're doing because somebody is <laughs> taking the trouble to exactly. say, don't do that, right?
1: Exactly. One of the other... Um, things that we haven't covered, though, is food. Um, one of my favorite um, customs to learn about were the funeral customs of the crypto-Jews and the foods that they served. And you can see some of those foods at Antonio's funeral. Um, that's uh, That's a fascinating thing. And recipes have come down to us from the era because they were seized by the Inquisition as ways to prove that women were Judaizing. And so um, since they kept such meticulous records for us, you know, these oppressors, um, I have the opportunity to read um, real-time recipes for Curious foods. And I incorporated many of them into um, my stories.
0: They all sound delicious, too, I have to say. Is there yeah. something distinctly Jewish about the recipes? I mean, are they different from from Christian Mexican recipes? Well, yes.
1: And first of all, um, of course, they do try to avoid pork. And they do try to avoid mixing the meat and the dairy. But um, because these are crypto-Jews, they are also, some of them, eating pork. And so they're dishes that are created to not look like pork. I don't know. It's a very interesting thing. They also have um, food that can be cooked overnight in banked embers so that um, the woman doesn't actually actively cook on the Sabbath. But, of course, that means that she has to do all the work beforehand, which has always been one of my uh, uh, themes, that these customs put all the burden on the women. cook clean, do everything before sundown on Friday and then serve meals without cooking them on Saturday and make sure the sheets are clean and all the clothes are washed. And yeah, you know, whose job is all that so that he can read the holy book, you know?
0: So. <laughs> Unfortunately, that seems
1: to be true pretty much everywhere. It's like, yeah,
0: it's not the guys who are out mar- uh, milking the mares once an hour, you know? Right, exactly. (laughs) So So, are there any other favorite elements or characters uh, from the novel that we haven't covered? I mean, I would love to talk about Don Antonio, but I'm not sure how much you want to reveal about him.
1: Yeah, I think with Don Antonio, um, I think the fact that he, interestingly enough, is he's a major character in Marcella's life, but he doesn't appear much on the page in the book. Because no, he doesn't. He, That's right. He, yeah. yeah. he He's not. He, I think that Altamiro is far more important than Antonio. Antonio is sexy. He's wealthy. He's he marries her after Santander and all of those wonderful things. But it's really his his arrival and his departure that are so important his arrival because it comes in the nick of time, and his departure because he sets in motion the last third of the book.
0: Right. And he's not comp I mean, he'll be a difficult character to make a major character because he's not complicated in the way that Altamiro is or even for the
1: father Ernesto. Yeah. I, I think he's he's important, but the others are um, more central to the plot. Mm-hmm.
0: So what would you like readers to take away from Chains of Silver and this series more generally?
1: Well, I think the most important thing to take away is that the times may be different and the manifestations are different, but the parallels between now and then, between the Inquisition and the fears of our society, our fears of of anyone who is different, the, quote, stealing of jobs by immigrants unquote the poisoning of pure society whether it's by muslims or jews it's all the same it's just wears a different uniform and i in my opinion that's what art's for that's why art matters we're you and i and other artists whether we're writers or poets or painters or actors Our role is to explore, I think, the meaningful issues of freedom and fear and social noise and oppression and struggle and identity, as well as love and passion. And that's why we write. And that's why I write. And I think that's why we read, too.
0: Yeah, I think it is. Um, I mean, it's a a perfect opportunity to explore someone else's life, whether you're reading about it or even more, if you're creating it, where you
1: really get inside someone's head. I think things are are far more the same than they are different. It's just like I say, it wears a different uniform. Mm -hmm.
0: So what about you? What are you working on now?
1: Well, um, I've turned my, I hinted at um, the fact that my mother was orphaned at 15 during the war. I've turned my attention to modern times and I'm looking at Um, the meaning of being Jewish, of being a daughter of a Holocaust survivor, and being a sister and a daughter in these times. And I'm very excited to be working with my family's story and moving into a fictionalized memoir of sorts. And it kind of gives me chills to realize what I'm finally doing. I'm finally writing a story that underpins all the other stories for me.
0: Oh, that's really wonderful. So, and will you go back to Mexico at some point?
1: Um, I've been back a number of times physically and um, I love it when I arrive I feel home
0: oh I'm (laughs) sorry I meant in your writing
1: in my writing um, I don't know because Mm -hmm. um, I'm working on this new book now and it doesn't really go to Mexico at all but who knows what'll come afterwards
0: all right well I will look forward to seeing it thank you so much for spending your time with us today
1: It's been my pleasure. Thanks for for inviting me to your podcast.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, and today I've been talking with Claudia Long about her Tendrils of the Inquisition series, including the just-released Chains of Silver. You can find out more about her at www.claudiahlong.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.